Welcome to the Ocean Hills Podcast. Our hope is that today's message would help you connect more deeply with God and with others. If you would like more information on what is happening in the Ocean Hills community, check out our website at oceanhills.org or download the Ocean Hills app. If you are encouraged by our ministry and would like to partner with us financially, you can give through your mobile device by texting Ocean Hills to 77977. We hope you enjoy this message. Preaching is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. And so, uh, um, 
you know, you basically uh, get a chance to choose your adventure about how long the sermon's going to be, you know? <laughs> so turn to your neighbor and say, help a brother out. <laughs> so, you know, I love basketball. Um, uh, um, you know, I, I don't play basketball. I like watching basketball. My, my sport of choice is I got bit with the golf club. And so, you know, that's, I love playing golf. But um, basketball, I like watching it. You know, and one thing that come up all the time from the commentators is they ask a question, like, you know, like Michael Jordan, or like, who's the best, or who's the best clutch player, like LeBron James, or, or Kobe Bryant, or even Steph Curry. I mean, that man could shoot a three-point from anywhere. And make it. And so when you're like the star player of the team, people know that if it's five seconds left, that you might get double team, maybe even triple team, but they're still going to get the ball to you, and you're going to take the shot at five, four, three, two, one, and most likely there's going to be a switch, and because you are a clutch player. Now the reason why people know that they can rely on the Michael uh, Jordans and the LeBron James and the Kawhi Leonard's and the Steph Curry's and it's because people know that they spend a lot of time practicing their jump shot. We live in a time right now where we got Iran going on. We live in a time right now where we have uh, uh, so much political division. We got economic divisions. We got racial tensions. We got all types of social tensions, generational. This is like, so some people say it's one of the most divided times that we've experienced. And do you know the world does not look to the church for what to do on reconciliation because we don't practice reconciliation that much. That's right. What I'm saying, like, I mean, if you've been to a, committee, a Baptist committee meeting, I don't know how y'all feel in the covenant, but you know, like, woo! We can practice on reconciliation, right? <laughs> and then when you add that on top of race and class and culture and all these other things, Lord have mercy. <laughs> See, the thing is, your community may or may not be a diverse community, but every Christian community ought to be a reconciled community. See, in Montecito, but it, it, there's a lot of things going on, like the city's been designed in a certain way, and there's certain policies that have been in place for hundreds of years, and so it's the demographic's going to look a certain type of way for just various reasons that are beyond our control. So you may or may not be a diverse community, there might be some areas where you can grow, but what I want to challenge you all today, and even get some vision today, is that you would learn what does it look like to be a reconciled community to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God that is to come. So one of the traditions that we do in our church is that um, we, we stand for all those who are able to rise and by the spirit as we read the scripture. I'm going to be out of Esther 4, 12, 16. And just open your hands up as, as a posture of receiving the word of God. Esther 4, 12, 16 says, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me, 
did not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my attendants will fast as you do when this is done. I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Today I'll be preaching from the text in the context of reconciliation for such a time as this. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that we may understand about the times that we're in and, and why did you put us in the position that you have for reconciliation for such a time as this. I pray that the words of my mouth and the message of my heart be acceptable in sight that you would use me as an instrument uh, for your people today. In Jesus' name we pray and all the God's people say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. So that's just a really interesting um, book of the Bible. Uh, it's a book that does not actually mention God's name specifically. I mean, how could you have a book of the Bible that didn't mention God's name? And I think one of the reasons why is because God wants to teach us what does it look like for us to engage in secular, mundane, everyday type of things. Because that's most of the world that we live in. We come into sacred spaces, maybe an hour, two hours. Um, if you come from the Pentecostal tradition, I came in four hours, like, you know. But, but, but you know, you spend most of your time in places that it doesn't look like and feel like God may or may not be present. But God is always in present. And so what we want to do is look to see what does the work of reconciliation look like, maybe in your location or your position that God puts you in outside these four walls of the church. The story of, uh, of Esther is in um, Persia. It starts with this guy named King of Xerxes. King of Xerxes uh, um, is in charge of the king of the greatest empire uh, uh, of that day. The Persian Empire went all the way from India to Ethiopia. That's a huge empire, and, and you know, like a lot of uh, public officials that are large and in charge, they're used to, when they say jump, people ask how high. When they think about a need, they have somebody that knows how to attend to their need. They are just so used to so much uh, privilege, and, and he wanted to kind of show off how much uh, 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 power and privilege that he had that he decided to put on a party for like seven days straight. He invited his buddies over, and they were drinking for seven days straight. There, um, his, his, his wife, her name was Vashti, she invited her lady friends over, and they were partying for seven days straight. And, you know, women know how to behave, and men that can act like a fool. You drink for seven days. I don't think they were probably doing the same foolishness, but the guys, they were just drinking for seven days straight, and they were like, you know what? Guess what? I got the best, most beautiful, baddest woman in all of the kingdom. Ego starts to come out. Now, ladies are probably doing something civilized, drinking tea, and doing whatever ladies do when they get together. And, 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 and Mordecai, no, no, Mordecai, Xerxes goes and he says, like, hey, somebody go get Vashti and let the guys know uh, um, how much uh, beautiful that she is. And what they do is they bring her over, and this is they says, hey, tell them to come and bring the crown. And when you look into the Hebrew, what he actually is saying is, uh, um, don't even just tell them to come to the crown. Tell them to come, uh, um, what the Hebrew translation says in the southern vernacular is, come butt naked. It's not naked, it's naked. Like, it's totally nothing but a crown and just your birthday suit. And so, she says, you gotta be crazy. I know y'all been drinking, but have y'all been smoking crack? Like, this is not a And so, 
But I perceive that she refuses to come, reasonably so. And you know how people can be. You can get some advisors that are around you that don't tell you what you need to hear, but tell you what you want to hear. So he has some advisors to tell him what uh, he wants to hear, and, and what they say is, you know what, you cannot let this woman tell you what to do. You need to be in charge of your uh, own household. As a matter of fact, if anything, uh, the word gets out that she doesn't listen to you, and you're, you know, this we can't have women like uh, um, kind of thinking on their own, and, 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 and actually, that'd be crazy. Yeah. Mind how times have changed, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, what he does is his advisors advise her to get rid of Ashtai because she held some dignity and respect for herself. So, you know, he kind of he gets rid of his wife, and then uh, they have this great idea, and they start the very first reality TV show called The Bachelor. <laughs> where Ken Gerksees goes all throughout India, and I mean, his people go all throughout India, and, and Ethiopia, and all the kingdom, and try to find the most beautiful woman, and they have this whole uh, uh, beauty contest, and, and, and they prepare for 12 months. Now, this is where this guy named Mordecai comes into the scene, and Mordecai is a very shrewd, wise man. He is kind of observant, seeing what's going on. Um, he had a cousin by the name of Esther, who was a orphan. That meant her parents died. And, 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 you know, just like it is today, that when you have a young uh, um, woman that uh, might be orphaned, might not have any um, person to take care of them, they either can be uh, um, really vulnerable for attacks both physically and, or they can become into, like, sex trafficking or, or become into prostitution or something of that nature. And so he just realized that his uh, cousin was vulnerable in that type of way, and so he started raising her on his own. He was looking at being a father. Um, he was like looking out for the best opportunities for her. He saw that she was uh, a very beautiful lady, a beautiful young lady, and she always probably could win this uh, competition. Um, you know, the Bible says that Esther was beautiful and had a great form. In the BST translation, that's the Beyonce song translation, <laughs> to her body was beautyless, you know? And so, Esther entered this contest, and she not only was a physically attractive and beautiful woman, she also had the strength by was called like the gift of woo. She would connect with people, and she had a really, really great um, personality. And this is just where I want to take a moment and just kind of unpack a little bit. Uh, and, and, and Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit God, he brings out this really interesting point. He says that we are here today for three reasons. One reason is uh, our chemistry, the things that we were born with. Number two is our environment, sociology, the context in which we grew up in. And number three are choices that we made. One is chemistry, the two was like our sociology, our environment we grew up in. Number three are personal choices that we made. He brings out the point that, that two out of three of those decisions had nothing to do with decisions that we made. You know, we live in America where everybody's all about being self-made, and it's always about the personal choices that I make and personal responsibility and all those things. And I think, yes, that is part of the formula, but that's only one-third of the formula. Two-thirds of those formulas that you're presented with all kinds of choices, 
just because of the fact of where you're born and who you are with. And, and we, we have to kind of put this, this, this myth of American individualism and self-reliance down and realize that, that we, if we were born with the right set of parents or in a really good family, or if uh, we uh, were born in a zip code that was uh, uh, really nice, that had like great schooling or uh, uh, good property values, that's the grace of God operating in our life. And the kind of decisions that we are presented with are in a very different type of decisions. Do you know the, the one of the primary ways of knowing people's kind of like kind of outcomes, health outcomes, educational opportunities, uh, um, professional opportunities, has everything to do with the zip code that you live or are born in. Your zip code, there's some zip codes, like the zip code in the neighborhood that Joanna live in, don't get college recruiters, they get military recruiters. And I would not be surprised if at the zip code here, never gets a military recruiter, but always gets college recruiters. So it's important to realize that uh, 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 Esther was born in the wrong zip code also. She had certain circumstances that uh, kind of presented in her life, and her ethnicity wasn't the right ethnicity for the context. And, and so she and her older cousins had very limited options about how did they get out of the situation they were in. And it's really important to realize that this beauty pageant put them in some questionable ethical situations. Let's just say that night with the king, they weren't going out to the ice cream parlor for a nice teenage date. And so this put some really questionable things that uh, was happening. Again, like Joy and I live in this neighborhood where we lived, we grew up in the suburbs, and then we moved to the inner city. Sometimes when you're in the suburbs, you're like, man, why do people make these kind of choices? Like, why don't the kids just get a job? But in the neighborhood we live in, up until this last year, there was no grocery store for a kid to learn how to be a bag boy to get some 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 uh, um, general like uh, working skills, or to the cashier to learn how to like uh, learn how to be a cashier, or even to be a stock person. And so, really, the the only options for getting money, the primary options for getting money is either you sell money or you sell your body. And those are the choices that you're presented. And the zip code I grew up in, I had a lot more choices. I wasn't allowed to have two parent households. You know, and, and, and these, I, I, I got a chance to go to college and, 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 and see Esther and many folks do not get that same type of opportunity. Some of y'all might be here that might have grew up like Esther. You know, it might just feel like you have an imposter syndrome because in my you feel like, oh man, this person was inherited this and that person got that, and I just didn't have the right family or born in the right places or whatever the case may be. But what's really important to understand is that God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. God uses the brokenness of our past, or our story, or, or just whether you were born into privilege or whether you were born into brokenness. The reality of it is all of us have something broken about who we are. Amen. I pastored at a church that um, was a very wealthy church, and, and I was living in uh, inner city. And this is the thing I've come to learn. All humans believe. In the inner city, you might see the blood on the streets, but in the gated communities, a lot of the bleeding is internal. 
And by the time you see a sign, it's a cold, blue, red situation. God wants to take those things, your chemistry, your environment, the choices that you made, and God wants to do something. And this is where we get into the story that, that Esther actually, her, her beauty, her, her gift of woo, these things that she was given, and, and this environment, even this unfortunate circumstance she was born in, um, with this, this, this cousin that was able to look out for her, put her in a position to be able to uh, uh, enter into this beauty contest, and she ended up being the person that won the beauty contest. She won favor with Xerxes, and, and she became the queen. Now, because Mordecai was used to being a father to him, he kind of stayed around and with culture on like what to do. And one of the pieces of advice that he gave to her was like, hey, don't tell them your ethnicity. Go ahead and assimilate within this cultural context and just don't let them, don't let them know who you are. And, and there's been a long history in our country where you, you, know, you can read about what they call passing, where if you're African-American or you're Hispanic or you're Asian and you're like light enough or something like that, your past is white, they say, hey, just, don't, just try to just climb up the, so, the socioeconomic ladder and this will kind of help you. But then even if you're like somebody might be dark collection like me, you know, uh, uh, there's very few environments, even in the church, where you can actually full bring your cultural ethnicity into a space. You have to assimilate within that dominant culture. This is what some people now call code switching. And, and this was the advice that Mordecai gave to Esther, which is said code switch, so that you kind of go on the radar that you could be successful. Mordecai was just why he was looking around. He found out that there was a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. So what he did was he called up Esther and said, hey, Esther, there's a plot to uh, um, kill King Xerxes, he let him know, and she let him know, and then he found out uh, what was going on, and they executed those folks, and he found favor with, was more favor with Esther, and it was because of what Mordecai took him off for. So shortly after this, there came a third character that came, a guy named Haman. Haman ended up coming number two in the, the kingdom, and he says, uh, there's this decree that goes out that whatever Somebody um, walks by Haman, they should bow down. For whatever reason, Mordecai wasn't about that bowing down life. And so he didn't bow down to um, King Haman. And Haman got really upset. He was another insecure leader. Didn't just want to come after Mordecai. Didn't want to just come after Mordecai's family. He says, hey, I want to come after this whole ethnicity. I want all of your people. And we're going to put a plan together to call to kill all your people. And instead of just like, actually, he put a policy in place to kill his people. Brothers and sisters, we have to realize for over hundreds of years in America, we've had policies in place to kill indigenous people or to make African Americans suffer, immigrant communities. I mean, not just with Hispanics, but the first group of um, non-white immigrants were Asian people out here in California. And these are things that, that, that Mordecai, he, he, he heard what was going on, and Haman um, used his kind of influence to put some policies in place, and the king wasn't even aware of the kind of policies that he put in place. Don't think your elected officials understand all of what's going on. There are some people who are, uh, who, who are applying to do certain things, 
And, and it just sounds reasonable on one side, but then on the other side, you're like, oh, this is causing a man destruction. And so Mordecai heard about what was going on, and he began to go in a time of mourning. And he was praying, and he was crying, and he was mourning and crying out to God, and he moved it out from his prayer closet, and he went and got as close as he could get to the palace to get folks' attention. This is an example in the scripture of protest in scripture. He moved out his mourning and his anger and his grief and got into a bit of protest. And see, he had to get the folks' attention, and this is really important to see because you have brothers and sisters who might be poor, who might be in the wrong zip code, who might be black, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, and right now they are causing some protesting because they're mourning and they say, hey, get your attention. There's some policies in place. There are some things in place that are causing me, uh, causing my family damage. And, and because I'm in, not in this particular uh, uh, certain circumstance, that I am now invulnerable and I need some people that aren't as vulnerable as me to pay attention to what's going on. And let's look to see what did Esther do. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. Now she wasn't in distress for the same reason Mordecai was in distress. You ever notice like how like you could be like a person of like means and and you know they could be like a poor person that could come and you're uncomfortable with that person being poor. But you're going to go home and eat anyway. But you kind of want to, like, you feel like it's inconvenient to you because you see somebody that's poor. That's what happened to her. She was like, I'm distressed because you caught the noise. And, and you know, I'm kind of kind of hard to be in this place. I did a whole lot of stuff in this last 12 years. And I don't want you to mess this up with me, Mordecai. And let me do this. So she sent clothes for him to put on instead of the sackcloth ashes, but he would not accept them. So her first response was yes to get distressed, not for the reasons that he was getting distressed, but reasons because of inconveniencing her. And then Esther went and used her purse to kind of like silence him. She used her resources to kind of like hush him up, you know, put some little hush money down. Man, how often do we do this, right? And think about this, like, I mean, I, I, I consider myself a privileged person, like, you know, like, uh, I, I make a living from ideas. I was holding my grandma's hand one time, and she was like, baby, you never did any hard work in your life ever before, have you? <laughs> Man, I like it upgraded on first class. Speak at these conferences, get like little, you know, confidence and all that kind of stuff. And there's nothing inherently wrong with being blessed by the gifts. But sometimes we can get twisted and feel like the reason why God put us in place so that we can be blessed. And that's it. But God put us in the place that we're in so that we can be blessed. Amen. So we can't use our resources to silence the Mordecai. So she eventually asked, like, all right, so just tell me, why is he protesting? And, and then why is he getting she finds about this plan? And then this, 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 the third thing that she does, she ends up saying, like, you know, what are you going to do about it? I can't, I can't lose this. 
Like, it's against the policy. It's against the policy for me to kind of like go and try to make, like, you come to the king when the king asks for you. If he doesn't ask for you, you don't go to the king. And I'll be kind of risking, my, risking all of what we built. So Mordecai sends the message back and says this. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this message. Do not think that because you are at the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position at such a time as this. See, Mordecai reminded her of a couple of things. One is she's helping her to remind her of her true identity. Sometimes when we are in the palace of privilege, we can forget our true identity. As Christians, we serve a God that came and gave himself and then died for the sake of others. One of the biggest problems why a lot of young people are rejecting Christianity today is because we aren't giving them a faith that is worth dying for. We're giving Jesus an add-on to all the things of an American dream. And, and and you just can't, I mean, like, if you wanted to do a rock concert and a TED Talk, you go see Beyonce and maybe uh, um, go see a TED Talk. But what God wants to call us to do is something to help us make as a child of God, as somebody that is that, that one of the most feared people, the most dangerous people in the world, are people who are not afraid to die. And as Christians, people that believe in the resurrection, we believe that death doesn't have a final say, so we should be some of the most dangerous people in the world for the enemy, uh, dangerous to the enemy, that, that tells the enemy, hey, we're not afraid to die for the sake of others. This is what it means to be a Christian. And that kind of radical faith is what is being, uh, we're being invited to, what we're being called into. But it also reminds Esther that it's a privilege to be invited to the work of God. Amen. He says, hey, God can use anybody. And he doesn't have to use you. Like he can put somebody else in the palace. We can do the story all over again. <laughs> so you gotta recognize. And so this is what her response was. <coughs> when Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because uh, you are in the king's house. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, it says, that's what said, send this out reply back to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not think, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my tenants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Brothers, there's so much brokenness in the world. And the only, I mean, I just feel like the service even a free uh, uh, preparation for this uh, conference. I've been here at this conference that you're talking about kinship, care about, and uh, Father world. I mean, I just think the Spirit's trying to do something here. Well, I, I didn't know anything. I found out this way. I just found out just now. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, this is the message. And so, We gotta realize that just like Esther, it was a long time.
when you're in a place in the power of privilege, it's a long time before you've been hungry. You forget what hunger pains feel like, what discomfort feels like. And what God was inviting her into was something that was beyond what she could do on her own, but something that required her to fast and to pray. One of the greatest challenges for a lot of American Christianity is that we feel called to do the things that our resources tell us that we can do. We, we fairly often feel called beyond our resources. But God is oftentimes inviting us into something. I'm not talking about just being reckless, but, 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 but we need to be on something beyond what we can do in our own material possessions. We need to, to, to receive and kind of hear that invitation of God that will require us to fast and to pray. When was the last time that you had to fast and to pray? I'm not talking about the New Year's resolution, I'm trying to lose weight, or the, the, the like, like, hey, I'm trying to get a new spiritual discipline. But you were responding to God to call to something that was required to depend on God in a way that you would have to fast and to pray. People are looking and needing for some leadership and reconciliation to deal with the brokenness going on in the world. And, and think about all of the people that's in here. I've known some people of significant influence in this space. And what if you start doing some things and thinking about stuff that was beyond what you could just only do in your resources? You can't outgive God's giving. You can't outgive, you can't outresource what God's calling you to do. So what if God just wants you to hey, I just want you to add some faith and some stretch into the things that you're doing? So how do you get into that journey? Thanks, baby. I'm glad I got one in the That's my problem. She was going to hold me down. Y'all working on it, but you know, we're going to work it. You got to ask yourself, who is your Mordecai in your life? Who are the people, like how do you identify just Mordecai? I'm going to give you three things as we close on how you can identify Mordecai in your life. Your Mordecai is someone who gives you a sober, sanctifying perspective. Somebody that's not going to just tell you what you want to hear, but will tell you what you need to hear. That's going to expand you to say, hey, David, fill your name in the blank. You can be more holy today than you were yesterday, and you can be more holy tomorrow than you are today. You want some people in your life that's going to give you a sober, sanctified perspective. Number two, you're going to want to give your Mordecai's going to invite you to move in proximity with the poor and the vulnerable. See, when the Bible is talking about poor folks and the way that God's people ought to engage with poor people, it's not for the business trip. It's not like the special thing that we kind of go and go see somebody that will do the thing. It's actually the concept of com community. Now, here's the thing that's really hard for those of us in America who have education, the money, and the resources. Um, our cities were built so that, you know how Jesus talked about who's your and he talked about there was a man on Jericho Road, and he was uh, beat up and, and taken advantage of. They didn't ask whose fault was it. They didn't ask was the proper policy. They didn't ask the personal responsibility. He said there was someone on the side of the road, and the pastor walked by. It wasn't your pastor, but it was another person back down the street. <laughs> he walked by. The good church we remember, Levite, walked by, and it was a Samaritan that offered this. Now here's the challenge. He said that's what, that's what it means to be a neighbor. Who was the victim? Here's a challenge for those of us in America. Our cities were built so we don't even have to see anybody down and out on the Jericho Road. 
highways and byways and bypasses we put in those spaces. So if we choose the right zip code that are best for our children, best for the property values, then we don't see folks. And I think often what happens when we get into these missions, on these mission trips, there's something in our spirituality that wakens up. That says, oh man, there's something deeper going on than just hearing sermons and singing songs that I need to participate in. So I think you know, Mordecai is going to fight through in proximity with the poor and the vulnerable because you'll see God there in, in unique ways and ways that, that your resources can be helpful, but it's not going to solve the problem, but there's going to be something deeper, but there needs to be some kind of mutuality happening with the poor and the vulnerable. I wouldn't have known this if it wasn't before I received the invitation in my life to move into this community that I'm into, and it's been one of the saving graces in my life and my life. Number two, three, <clears throat> is your Mordecai <clears throat> will call you to a destiny that is dependent on God. Many of us aren't doing things that require us to depend on God. Then you get a point where you build enough um, professional credibility, social network, have enough resources, we just don't have to depend on God. I leave in car with a family sharing this, but I didn't give the story of confession of my own life. And um, I was uh, I had the privilege one time of of uh, giving words at a dedication for an unmarked slave cemetery. I mean this was just every time I talk about it I get like a chill when I think think about this. Here this an African American guy that, you know, um, Kind of my first part of my career was as a musician, a producer, and as, you know now uh, as a speaker and consultant and strategist. And like, I basically made a living through ideas. And here I am, getting the honor to give words in front of African American uh, um, slave cemetery, unmarked brothers and sisters, that many of them were Christians that uh, were buried and unmarked graves, and nobody knows who their names are. Man. And then that moment, I was painfully aware of how much of my faith is contingent upon my abilities, my networks, my ingenuity, all these things. <clears throat> these brothers and sisters that went to the State Cemetery, they were praying at nighttime, worshiping God at nighttime, having faith that God will deliver them one day, not even for their generation, but for their children or their children's generation. And now I'm a living witness that God is faithful. Brothers and sisters, we need that kind of faith. Like all of us in a way better situation than that. I don't care what situation you're in today. We love that. And so, so we just need some faith. And so this invitation to begin to live and to do something that is dependent on God is really, really significant. And uh, I just, I think with the, I want to encourage y'all to, you, your life will be changed, spend some time with um, Father um, Broil and Kara Powell, and, and particularly amongst young folks today and their faith. I mean, it's, I just, I just really feel the Spirit's doing something here in a really significant way. So I just want to pray. Uh, again, 
And the way that we'll close is, I actually want to give some silence. If, uh, if you could kind of just get your, um, just kind of get yourself in a posture, maybe open your hand up to receive the Lord. And I'm going to um, just, just give two minutes of silence, just to kind of see what might the Spirit be saying and doing in your life. Like, the Lord wants to open you up to something to be able to see, like, God, this is, what do you have for me to do to this invitation that I might be engaged in a little bit of so, so, sober state from my perspective? So we have to move in more proximity before, and I just kind of do hush money kind of stuff, something that will cost me something, and then a destiny that is dependent on God. So we do sounds, and, and, and after two minutes, I'll pray.
And, and Lord, I just really pray for just a, a new level of transformation. It seems like there's growth that's happening in this church and there's, there's vibrancy that's happening. So, Lord, I just pray that they just won't put up limits on what it is that you're calling them to do. And it's time to see this. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, Amen. Before you re-enter your day, we hope that you will take just a few moments to pause and respond to what God has put on your heart through this message. Thank you again for listening to the Ocean Hills podcast. For access to more sermons, visit the Watch and Listen page on OceanHills.org or find them on the Ocean Hills app.